with Systemically Distorted Communications, and today I have D.A. Michaels, a U.S. Navy veteran, first responder, and author of the book Courageously Broken. Hello, Donna. How are you doing today? I'm good, Brent. Thank you very much. Uh, so I just want to start it kind of with, uh, you're the author of Courageously Broken, and uh, what, what is the premise of Courageously Broken, and what were your motivations for writing it? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I tell people it was a book by accident. It started as a, a, a self a self journey. I was journaling to kind of go over some things in my life, trying to find some answers. And when I got done, um, as, I, as I got about halfway through it, I started sharing it with a, a, a very close friend of mine. And I'm like, hey, do you remember this? Do you remember that? And going over the past and, and memories and and he's like, this is really good. You need to keep going. So I did. And um, by the time I got done, because it was funny, the whole time I was writing it, I had no idea how it was going to end, right? So after I got through it all, I started thinking, okay, now why? Why did why did all these things happen? And then I started just kind of thinking, you know, everything in the, everything in, it, it, I, I'm of the belief that everything happens for a reason, good and bad. Um, and I think there's something to be learned from every experience. So I, um, I just really gave it some deep thought and, and um, put it together and sent it to him. And he's like, you know, he goes, if you, if you uh, can get yourself to a place where you'd be willing to share this, you know, outside your bubble, he's like, I really think you could help some people with it. So I sat on it for a while. And then um, I had been talking to someone who I really didn't know very well. It was, it was very much a casual friendship. And we had been texting and I went uh, to the Keys for a long weekend. And uh, about a week after I got back, I got a text message from his phone and uh, it was his brother and he had committed suicide. And I was the last person he had spoken with. So his brother was looking for answers, understandably. So I, um, I took that pretty hard because I was like, I was the last person he talked to, you know, and I was racking my brain thinking he seemed fine. I don't understand, you know, why. And, uh, when I, when I found out why he was a combat veteran and he was him and a very close friend of his were like the lone survivors of a, um, an IED roadside bomb in Iraq. And, um, his friend committed suicide, like the day after I spoke to him, he got word of it. And he decided that was it. I think he was already borderline anyway. And I think the two of them were kind of just keeping each other going. Mm -hmm. Long story short, um, he, he got all of his financial affairs in order. I mean, he was very well organized. There was pretty much nothing for anybody to do except, you know, make the arrangements. Um, and that was it. And it, it, it tore me to pieces, you know, and I, I really started thinking about it and I'm like, God, you know, maybe I should have spent more time talking to him. You know, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? And that's when I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe I should release my story because if it can help one person um, stop from, from killing themselves and spare, you know, everybody else that kind of pain, then it's worth it. Mm -hmm. So I changed, you know, of course, all the, the names in the, in the book, in the story, all been changed for their privacy, including my own. Um, and, uh, and I, and I went for it. I reached out to a good friend of mine, Don Mann, who is a retired uh, SEAL Team 6 um, SEAL, New York Times bestselling author. And I called him because we served together many years ago. 
And I said, Hey, I think I wrote a book. Now what do I do? And I, cause I had no idea. Yeah. And he, uh, he was really, he was really awesome. He was very supportive. He, he looked over my manuscript and he agreed I needed to, to move forward with sharing my story. So he was kind enough to write my forward for it. And, um, and then I just went for it and it has humbled and, and far exceeded my expectations. I am, I am humbled and honored with how many complete strangers have reached out to me and, and, and thanked me for sharing my story because it's helped either them or someone they love that they didn't understand what they were going through. So it's all about going through the, the battles in life and getting beat up by life, right? Cause stuff happens to everybody. You can't get through life without going through some sort of hardship or trauma. Yeah. And it's about um, dealing with those traumas and getting stronger from the scars that they leave rather than letting them break you. Because I spent so many years, and that's how I kind of, kind of came up with the title. I spent most of my life feeling very much broken and I was always putting on my game face. I always had a smile. Nobody had any idea what was really going on in my head for many, many years. Um, I wasn't suicidal for many years. I just felt like kind of felt like I belonged on the Island of misfit toys. Like I just didn't fit in, you know, I was different. And, um, and then, you know, for me, it takes, and I'm not saying this about myself. I'm saying this about everybody. It takes a lot of courage to face your demons because nobody wants to do it. It's very, very painful to do it. Um, and for me, it took a lot of courage for me to come out and share my story because there are some very personal details in it. Um, and so that for me was, was, you know, it's courage. I, I had to find the courage to do those things. And, um, and now I, you know, and I think in the end, you know, we, we all feel a little broken, anybody who's been through traumas. So that's kind of how the story came about. It started as a journal, which became a book. And the title is meant to uh, describe the feeling of being broken, but having the courage to deal with it mm -hmm. and fix the, fix the, the things that we feel broken about. Mm -hmm. All so. right. Well, that's. First of all, it's great. You took uh, you took my next question right away from me. I was kind of ask wanted to ask about the title of the book and uh, how you came up with that, but you completely answered that with the end. So, uh, if you were to choose an audience, who would you say? What is the overall message of your book, and and who would you like to target to read your book? Originally, my target was veterans and first responders mm -hmm. because the statistics. Uh, or excuse me, the rates of PTSD are just so high in those occupations, right? And the reason they're so high is because we're just exposed to more trauma than the average citizen is, right? Because that, that's our job. You know, if you're in the military and you go to combat, you're going to see things the average human being, you know, at home doesn't ever see and can't even imagine, right? Yeah. And as a first responder, you know, when somebody calls 911, you're not rushing to a birthday party. You're, you're rushing to somebody's worst day, whether it's a loved one passed away, um, the domestic violence situation, or, or think of a million different emergencies, right? Mm -hmm. So we're always responding to these calls where someone is being traumatized. So originally those were my audiences, veterans and first responders. But now 
learning everything I have and hearing from people who've read the book, I realize it's really for everybody. It's for people who love veterans or first responders. It's for that clerk at the convenience store who was held up at gunpoint and terrified for her life because she thought she was going to die, right? It's mm -hmm. for that family who was in a horrific car crash. You know, it, it's for anybody who's experienced any type of trauma because it can really happen to anybody. But the rates are higher among veterans and first responders just because of what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I think that's something that people don't necessarily key into that in many cases, the worst day of individuals' lives is often your experience every day. You, that's correct. You encounter their worst day all the time. And though you may not experience it in the same way that you do, you're still a part of that and you're still experiencing it. And you have to live with the ramifications of that and any side effects that come with it and, you know, all kinds of different you know, everybody's different. We all have different mental tolerances, but mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine. I'm not going to go into stories that I've heard, but going into situations with children, like oh. I just can't. Like it, it gives me. They're the uh, worst. Yeah, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable even talking about it because I can't imagine how yeah. to go in and see that kind of stuff every day. And um, that was that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me in 2017. That was what caused me to hit rock bottom. It was my seventh child death in my career. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that particular one. I call it the perfect storm in, in my book. It's that's the name of the chapter. I was already going through a personal uh, I was going through some personal problems, right? My mom was in ICU, my dog had just died, you know, not like your dog died, your mom was in the hospital, that happens to everybody. That's true, it does. But for me personally, it was all kind of happening within a short time frame. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't able to get over one situation before I kind of got punched in the face with another one. Mm -hmm. Well, those two things were going on in my life when I responded to the death of a child, a two-year-old. And it all happened within seven days. So I couldn't kind of recover from one before the next one came and then the next one came. Mm -hmm. When that, when that, on June 1st, 2017, I mean, like that date is ingrained in my memory. Um, that was the one that broke me. I, and, and it brought every single traumatic death call in my career that I had stored away somewhere on a back shelf in my brain. And it's like, it all just came forward and I just couldn't get it all out of my head. And I was having nightmares and I wasn't sleeping and I was crying constantly. It was like truly the straw that broke the camel's back. And I was down and I couldn't get back up again. And like, and it was hard for me because all my life I had been told, oh, you're so strong. You're so resilient. You've been through so much. And here I am and I can't even get off my bathroom floor. I'm in the fetal position crying on my bathroom floor. And my daughter is, mommy, what's wrong? You know? And in my daughter's eyes, I was Wonder Woman. I was a superhero. You know, she was about 10 at the time. Mm -hmm. And all I could tell her is, honey, mommy's, ooh, this is emotional. All I could tell her is, mommy, you know, mommy's sad right now. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and she wanted to help me and she was only 10 and she couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand it, right? Other than I was really sad and I couldn't seem to shake it. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, you know, the, the, the children calls. And I mean, not just for me, for everybody, I have never found anybody that has disagreed with this. It, when they, when it, when it's the children, it hits you the hardest, especially if you're already a parent, because mm -hmm. you cannot help, but picture that being your child. You, you start going through the what ifs, right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's, uh, 
and I'd handled a cut and I'd handled a couple teenage suicides at the time. And my daughter was entering, entering middle, getting ready to start that middle school age. Mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking, oh my God, what could be so mad just to make a 12 year old do this to themselves? I just couldn't, I couldn't comprehend it, you know? So it was, it was, it sucks. That's the yeah. only way to put it. I mean, I don't have a family. I don't have children and I'm not in that situation. And I know that I can't comprehend the feelings and emotions that really come from that situation. But even just trying to think about it and talk about it is, is even hard to do in my position. So I, I really can't even imagine to the extent that it can impact a person that's involved in that situation. So when you're, when you're in a situation like that and you're, you're struggling and you've got a daughter and you've always looked at yourself as a strong person, you're, you're engaging in a, a lifestyle that a lot of women won't do. What do you do to overcome those challenges where you just, you've, you got to the point where you do feel broken. How do you overcome it? Well, um, you know, you, you hear sometimes, this is just an analogy because I'm not really not comparing the two. Okay. Cause it, to me, it's two different things, but it's the only way I know how to do it. You hear people talk about people who have an alcohol problem or a drug problem and, you know, you put them in rehab and you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that. And sometimes, you know, they have to hit that rock bottom. They have to get so close to death that it's a wake up call. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's what, I've never experienced that, but that's what I've been told from people who've had a loved one who had a drug addiction or an alcoholic problem or something of that nature. And, you know, at some point they've just, you know, you can't, they, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. They've got to hit rock bottom before they want to help themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, in 2017, what I was talking about, I, I, I was terrified. I wasn't about to tell anyone what was going on because I had been a, a CIT officer the vast majority of my career, which stands for crisis intervention. So I was especially trained to recognize mental health issues in, in people and um, de-escalate, um, talk them into coming to the hospital to get some help. Um, and in where I live, you know, we call it a Baker act and I, as a a law enforcement officer can sign papers and basically admit them into a mental hospital where they get treatment, right. Get put on some meds and then sent back out again. We turn them over to the doctors because we're not psychiatrists, but we're trained to recognize when someone's in crisis and when they need help. And then we can turn them over. And I had done that hundreds of times in my career. I mean, it, we do them all the time. Sometimes and sometimes it's easy. The person will call us themselves and say, hey, I'm having some bad thoughts. I need a ride. And they know that they can't go voluntarily because there's no beds available. But if I take them as an LEO, they have to make a bed available. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, yeah. So they learn they learn the system after a while. They can't get in on their own. So they'll call us and they'll have us do it for them. And we're always happy to do that. I mean, if they're legitimately, you know, think they're a danger to themselves, you know, no problem. Come with me. We'll take them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a lot of times it's those calls, but then sometimes it's a parent or a loved one calling going, Hey, I need you to come help me with my husband or my son or, or whatever. Anyway. So in my situation, I was keenly aware of what thoughts I was having. And I was keenly aware what would happen if I called and told somebody what I was thinking. And I was terrified of that happening to me because honestly, I didn't have any trust in the system. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, nope, 
they're going to take my badge. They're going to take my gun. My career will be over. I will, you know, do nothing more than embarrass myself. And I um, will just be worse off than I am now. I, I literally was like, I would rather be dead than go through that. And um, so I was adamant that I, I mean, my, even my best friend, I wouldn't even take her phone calls. I, my, I got to the point where I wasn't taking my mother's calls. I wasn't taking anybody's calls because I couldn't stop crying. I was going to work and I was um, staying alone. You know, we work alone anyway in our, in our agency, but I would go to calls and I would, you know, cancel my backup because I didn't want them to, because everybody knew, knows my normal personality is pretty outgoing, pretty gregarious. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. a chatty Kathy. Hello. <laughs> um, but, but the, during that time I wasn't during that time I was like, crawled in within myself. And I knew that if somebody saw me, they would know something was wrong. And I didn't want so I was trying my very best to just get through my shift and go home and not be around anybody that knew me. Strangers wouldn't know, but my peers would. So anyway, it was about six weeks after the the baby died. It was about the middle of July, when I just couldn't take it anymore. And I had, I had called a friend, emailed a friend out of state and said, you know, Hey, you mind if I send Sophia, uh, up there for, you know, a couple weeks on the farm, let her have a little vacation. Cause it was summer break. And they were like, Oh yeah, that would be great. You know? So put her on a plane and sent her out of state. Well, I figured to myself, either I'm going to figure out how to get help. I'm going to figure out how to pull myself out of this, or I'm going to end it one or the other. Mm-hmm. And after about five or six days, I wasn't getting any better. I could not even see the light to figure out how to get out. So I came up with my plan and I called uh, my best friend who I served in the military with, who knows me truly better than I know myself. Like he knows me. There are no secrets between us. Mm -hmm. And I called him and I had intended to leave a voicemail on his, you know, on his phone because he was terrible at answering his phone, especially on weekends. And, um, but he answered and I just broke out into tears and was hysterical and he couldn't even make out anything I was saying. And he was like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. slow down, take a breath. What's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, I, all I could say was, I just want to die. I can't do this anymore. I can't take the pain anymore. I never knew depression could be physically painful because I had never been through real clinical depression before. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, said, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm just, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. He's like, Oh no, you're not. No, you know, you're not. He goes, you're just going through a really bad spell. Mm-hmm. He's like, I promise. He said, it will be okay. He goes, you just need to talk to someone. And I said, I can't, I said, they'll take, they'll take everything from me. I can't, you know, there's nobody to talk to, you know, that my agency won't find out. So we're self-insured and I was convinced that if I went and I used my insurance that my agency would not figure it all out, you know, so he said, no, it can be done. I know plenty of people that have done it. So he kind of told me how to handle it. And I, I did, he made me promise. I made him, I said, you're not going to call the cops on me. Are you please don't call the cops on me. He's like, I promise I won't call. If you promise you will go get some help. So I promised I would. He checked on me, uh, well, like I said, eight hours that day. The next day, he checked in on me throughout the day. Um, 
I had had some uh, medicine in the cabinet that um, he told me, you know, to take one, it'll help you take the edge off, you know, just to get you through the day until mm-hmm. you get till tomorrow. We were literally taking it like at some one point it felt like it was, you know, a minute at a time and then an hour at a time. And then it was like a day at a time and that kind of a thing. So we got to Monday, I called into work sick and I went and I saw, um, believe it or not, I went and saw my OBGYN <laughs> because I thought maybe it's my hormones. Maybe I've got a hormone imbalance, right? You know, I was 47 at the time. It's possible. Hmm. So I went and I talked to my doctor and he's like, I'm going to write your prescription for an antidepressant. He goes, but I'm telling, and I'm going to run labs on you. He goes, but I'm telling you, it's not your hormones. He goes, you're clinically depressed. You've been through a lot. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and you need to get some help. So he got me started and the meds at first, the first prescription prescription didn't work. It actually made things worse. And then I stopped taking it and I called back and, oh, I was really angry on that phone call. Cause then I went from sadness to, to pissed off at the world and angry. Mm-hmm. And, um, then he, then a, a, another friend that was a com, a combat veteran, he, he'd been through his fair share of stuff. He's like, try, uh, try this one. This one worked really well for me. Cause now at this point I trusted my brothers. I trusted my combat veteran brothers because they, they understood. And I, and I, and I knew that they understood what I was afraid of. So now at least I've got somebody that understands, or at least I felt like they did and they did. So he suggested a different prescription. So I called the doctor back and I said, Hey, can I try this one? That one um, didn't have any negative side effects at first. Didn't have anything really, but on, I can remember vividly on the 10th day I woke up and it was the first day that I, I started, had started to feel like my old self again. Like I didn't feel like I was going to burst into tears. Mm-hmm. I, you know, didn't struggle to get, even get out of bed. It was like I said, I was starting to feel human again. And then over the next several months, it was like something kept coming into my path that was like divine intervention. I met somebody who taught me how to get to the VA and start getting benefits from the VA, which I had never gotten before. And that went very smoothly, which when's the last time you ever heard anybody say something at the VA went smoothly, right? Mm -hmm. But it did. I can honestly say the VA was good to me. Um, Then... I managed to do that for two years and my employer had no clue what I was doing. And then they passed a law for first responders and PTSD where it was considered a work-related injury. And once they passed that law, I gave it about six months and something came up, an opportunity came up and I called HR and I said, I have something I need to tell you. I have this, I said, I wouldn't be telling you this if I didn't have an opportunity to heal and, and, but I need time off work to go do it. And I told our, our HR director, you know, what I had been keeping a secret for the last two years mm-hmm. and they were very supportive. You know, they, they didn't give me the time off I wanted, but they did open up a workman's comp case for me and they did get me even more help locally. So um, while I didn't get exactly what I wanted, I at least got understanding and I got additional help on top of what the VA was already giving me. So you know, I was, it was a fair compromise, I think. Um, I, I don't know if I mentioned before, but I'm getting ready to retire soon. And once I retire here in the, in the next couple months, I'm planning, I, I've been earmarked for that special program. It's in Texas and I'm going to go to Texas and get that, still get that opportunity. It's just, 
it wouldn't have happened anyway because COVID came. So, oh. I mean, anyway, it worked out. So I'm going to go yeah. this summer and I'm still going to get that, that treatment. Yeah. Okay. So would you say, so before you mentioned if you had came and told your department this, you'd, you would have lost your badge. With this new program that they have going, is that something where police officers that are struggling with this, they can now come out and, and talk about the issues they're having without being kicked off the force or, or losing their career? Well, there's, there's some very strict rules in place. Um, and I'm on the, what we call a SISM team, which is critical incident stress management. So we make up teams. Um, and anytime there's a traumatic call that goes out, if it involves a child death, a horrific car crash, you know, officer involved shooting or, or death, anything that's considered traumatic, um, we go out and we meet with the first responders that were on the scene that were, that could have been affected. And we, what we do, what's called like a debriefing and we let them know, Hey, listen, if you in the coming week start having trouble sleeping, if you find yourself drinking more than usual, if you find yourself lashing out at your loved ones and we start telling them what all the kind of the, the red flags are, you know, don't ignore that, you know, don't think you're crazy. If you know, talk to your spouses and tell them, Hey, listen, if I start acting in any of these ways, you know, bring it to my attention. And we tell them that there's help and that they're not alone, that everybody on that team has been there at some point. And we let them know that it's okay not to be okay, that some of this stuff is going to get to you. Our, we see things that human beings aren't supposed to see. Mm -hmm. And if we don't process it properly, there's going to be consequences, right? Mm -hmm. When I first started 20 years ago, you left one of the most horrific calls there was and you were right on to the next one. Nobody even asked you, hey, are you okay? I mean, that's just... That was your job. So, um, but I've talked to other people, I'm like, you know, but also in the old days, not my old days, but the old days, maybe like the generation before me, mm -hmm. cops and firefighters were much more closer than we are today. We, we hung out with each other's families in our off time. You know, we, um, they went to bars, they drank, they told war stories, believe it or not, that's very healing. Now, of course, if you overdo it, you're drinking all the time, that's not okay. But that camaraderie and that um, sharing of stories and feelings actually helps than just throwing it on the back shelf and moving on because then you're not processing it. You're not dealing with it. So they've, you know, what they have found is when we intervene uh, quickly after one of these, um, it reduces the chances of PTSD, but everybody's different. Mm -hmm. So if we've got, let's say we have a child who dies of a seizure, just, I'm just hypothetically. Okay. And it turns out one of the first responders has a child with epilepsy. Do you think he's going to be more affected than maybe the other people that were there? Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, I would think so. Definitely. That hits really close to home, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we call too close to home. So he's likely to struggle with it more than maybe the other people there. So it's all about perspective. You know, we're not robots, we're humans, we have lives, we have different histories. Um, and what might bother me might not bother someone else or vice versa. It just it just depends on how, what, what what makes us who we are. Mm -hmm. So um, now yeah, the law protects us, but we have to report it, we have to, uh, we have to report that we're having problems within one year of the trauma itself. Because what they tell us is, and these are based on studies, is that it's normal to have some trouble up to six months 
I think it is. Mm-hmm. And that's what they call PTS, post-traumatic uh, stress or post-traumatic syndrome. I think it's, yeah, I think that's it. But it's normal. But then after six months, you're supposed to go back to normal and you will have processed it and moved on. If your symptoms last longer than six months, it's likely it's not going away. It's PTSD now at that point. So, so there's, you know, and now there's a new one called PTSG Mm. or uh, post-traumatic growth, PTG, post-traumatic growth. And they, they say that's part of the healing phase because you're growing from it. Um, I have not heard that used in the medical field or in any of the therapy I've gone through. That's more of, of a civilian term I've been hearing thrown around lately. So maybe it's something new and I just haven't heard it. I don't know, but I've heard it in some of the, the mental health rooms and conferences that I go to. So what happens to the police officers that beyond that six months, they're still struggling with it. And I mean, you, you can't keep sending them to, to calls. So what, what happens? Oh, no, we do. They go to work and they continue to go to their calls. They, yeah, no, they, unless a doctor tells them, you know, Hey, listen, you know, you can't go, which Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, all of this is protected under HIPAA, you know, confidentiality. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you it doesn't happen. But if it does, I'm not aware of it. I'm Mm -hmm. sure at some point it does. Um, But it's up to the officer um, or the first responder to go to their department and say, Hey, I'm having some problems. First thing they're going to do is they're going to send them to a doctor for an evaluation, not a, not a Baker Act, not a, and unless they're a threat to themselves, they're not going to in-house them or anything. It's just going to be like a regular doctor's appointment. And then they're going to do an evaluation. And um, then the doctor will make recommendations. I think they need some counseling. He'll write a prescription. And as long as they're functioning and they're not, you know, screwing up at work or doing anything wrong, they're, they're going to continue to go on and do their job. Where it gets um, sticky is, you know, what if they get another really horrific call? And that does happen. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that we really got to keep close eye on because they know we're already having trouble before. Now they've had another bad call. Um, and, it, you know, it is what it is. I remember when my daughter was little and I had, um, it was the child death before the last one. I went several years in between because of where I was assigned. I didn't have to go to those calls. Mm-hmm. After the, the one when my daughter was a baby, I started avoiding those calls, like avoiding them. I literally told my partners, hey, you guys know my daughter was a preemie. You guys know that like she was on life support for two months. You guys know this stuff hits really close to home for me. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can handle another one of those calls for at least a while until I know my daughter's ha- you know, healthy and, and older. And my partners were great about it. Now, this was back in uh, 2006, I think, 2007, maybe, 2006. And my partners were great about it. They're like, no problem. You know, we got gotcha. you. There's going to be calls that you just, and then I would have a partner tell me, hey, listen, I can't do dead bodies. I can't, I can't do dead bodies. I can't stand the smell. It reminds me of XYZ, and I just can't do it. And I would go, okay, those don't bother me. I'll do those. So we would, we would look out for each other like that. We knew certain calls really affected others more than, so we would try to look out for each other. Mm -hmm. Is it 100%, you know, possible? No, sometimes it's not, but we would try. And mind you, we don't go to those calls every single day. You don't get a a death call on every call. Mm -hmm. It sometimes seemed like it came in waves where you would get them like back to back to back, like, hey, they happen in threes, as they say. Then you'd go a while for without one. Okay. So it's kind of really, really weird and random. But um, 
and I work for a fairly large agency. So there's way more manpower. So it kind of spreads it out. Okay. Whereas, you know, small towns, I mean, then again, they don't have the same population. So yeah. I would imagine the ratio is about the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you don't have to answer this one if you don't want, or you can be vague or whatever. But in my experience, which is, which is nowhere near the traumatic stuff that you or other police officers have been through. But in the past, when I've gone to work, you know, when I was younger, if I'm having a bad day because something else happened in my personal life or whatever, something very small can happen. And like, I blow up. And a few days later, I'm thinking, man, why did I react that way? Like I was really emotional in that moment. So when you're going through these things and you're still going on calls, how does that, how did that impact your performance in your ability to handle these high stress situations repeatedly? Because every single call technically could be your last call. You don't know what you're coming into. So the stress with every single call that you're going into while dealing with all these other issues that you have going on and other officers may have going on. How did that impact you trying to just do your job on a day-to-day basis? Oh, I mean, like I said, we're all human, you know, the, the media makes us out to be robots. Like we don't have a, a heart or feelings and, you know, it's so far from the true. We wouldn't be doing this job if we, if we didn't care or didn't have feelings. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get, we sign up for this to help try and help people. I mean, are there bad apples? Yes, there's bad apples in every bunch, but not like everybody makes it out to be. We'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll give you an example. Um, I was on my way home. I was off the clock and I came upon a crash that just happened. I was close. I was far enough away that I couldn't see it happen, but I was close enough that I could see the dust and and all that flying in the distance. Does that make sense? Mm, Yeah. And um, so, of course, you know, I have to stop. Right. I'm in a patrol car. I'm even though I'm off duty, I'm on my way home. I have that's my job. I have to stop. So I stopped. Well, as I got out of my car and I, you know, stopped traffic because it was like in the it was a two it was a four lane highway, a median in the middle. So it was two lanes going in one direction. Mm -hmm. And um, the the first car was a semi. And the second car was a regular passenger vehicle that rear ended it. Mm -hmm. And it was partially taking up the left lane. So could traffic have driven around it? Yes, they could have. But as soon as I got out of my car, I saw another first responder who was um, a paramedic and he was off duty and he must have been like a flight medic because I could see him in a flight suit. So I knew right away, you know, based on what he was wearing, I knew what he did. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got to the car first because he was right there. He was much closer to it than I was. And um, as soon as I got out of the car, he just looked at me and he went like this, which I knew meant no hope. There's like nothing we can do. It's bad. Yeah. So I right away, because now it's going to be a traffic homicide. Um, anytime someone dies in a crash, even if it's an accident, we call it a traffic homicide. Doesn't mean that there's any foul play. It's just it's, it's an unattended death. It's labeled as a homicide. So um Right away, I stopped traffic because that's what we're supposed to do. Nobody can go around. It's considered a crime scene, right? And um, everybody was actually very, very nice. But then there was that one guy who had to go 
through where we were going. And I mind you, we were kind of out in the boonies. There were no side streets. There were no detours. He, the only way to, to get around it was to turn around, go back to the next exit and then go around. I mean, but it was quite a bit out of the way. It was no, e- there was no easy way getting around this. Mm-hmm. He's yelling and cursing at me and, and calling me names. Like I'm being ridiculous. Why can't he just go around and, you know, and I, I'll be the first one to admit I'm a smart ass. I am. I'm a, I was in the military and 20 years as a cop. I have dark humor, just like everybody else does. It's a coping mechanism. We all have, most of us have it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I so badly, you know, wanted to speak the truth, but I knew better. Right. Um, but there's, you know, I mean, there's these people, they think that the world just revolves around them and that the rules just don't apply to them. Those are typically the ones that give us a hard time. It's not the majority. Mm-hmm. It's that one loud mouth who shouts from the, the treetops and acts as if they speak for everyone. And they really don't. Mm-hmm. They just think they do. Yeah. Um, and the media gives them that opportunity to act like they do. Right. But they don't. That does seem to be the case especially with social media it's like the the loud ones are kind of ruling everything even though it's really the minority of the population it's the it's the loud minority and um you know and what we've been saying is that you know the silent majority is getting fed up Mm -hmm. and i'm scared of what's going to happen i mean they're poking the bear and the bear is going to get fed up here one of these days so we'll see but um but I, I remember we had a horrific crash one night on a major interstate and um, without going into too much horrible detail, basically there were body parts everywhere. There was a pedestrian hit on an interstate. So you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It was prom night and we were holding up traffic on the interstate with a bunch of stretch limos and rich kids in it trying to get to the prom mm-hmm. and they're honking their horns at us. They're yelling. There was no way in hell we could let anybody through there. I mean, literally. And, you know, this one lady is just screaming, you know, vulgarities and cursing at us. That lady, this was many years ago, that lady, I did walk up to her and I said, ma'am, if you would like to get out of your car and come out there and help us pick up the body parts, I said, maybe we could get this going a little bit faster. I said, but in the meantime, you're going to have to wait. Mm -hmm. I'm like, now, should I have said that? No, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. But I had been standing there for two hours getting cursed at by rich prom by rich you know teenagers trying to get to prom Mm -hmm. like it's my fault and there's literally like nothing i can do right yeah so and and the person that had been hit was a teenager so it was an extra extra troubling call right yeah um so that that sucked but um but yeah believe it or not we clear these calls and then we go on to the next one and i kid you not the next call could be um, a landlord tenant dispute mm-hmm. or a roommate dispute over money that we're not even supposed to be at those calls. Cause those are what we call civil issues and we don't get involved in them, but mm-hmm. somebody will call the cops. You know, my roommate took my dress. I mean, literally petty, stupid stuff like that. We'll get those calls. Um, one of our favorites is morning calls when a parent will call because a 10 year old won't get out of bed and, and go to school. We get those calls. And we, yeah, yeah, believe it or not, this is, this is a reality. This is what we deal with. And, um, because parents nowadays like are afraid to be parents. And I've had to tell more than one parent, 
grab him by the arm and drag him out of bed. Oh no, you'll take me to jail. Um, no, I won't. Uh-huh. And then I, you know, and then I tell the kid, you know, and I have a, like I like to call it come to Jesus talk with him. Right. I'd be like, look, if, if you don't go to school, we're going to, no, we don't really do this, but we tell the kids this. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, if you don't go to school, we're going to take your mom to jail because the law says you're supposed to be in school and that's your mom's responsibility. So if you don't get your butt up and go to school, mom's going to jail and then you're going to a foster home. And let me tell you what foster homes look like. And then we'll just describe like the worst possible, you know, image of, a, of what foster care looks like, which sadly a lot of times is true, which is sad in itself, but that's a whole nother subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, it's like, really, really, you know, I just came from a newlywed who's been married a month and found her new husband dead on the floor in the bathroom this morning. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to your house because your 10 year old will get out of bed and go to school. Yeah, it I- is very hard to not get frustrated. I think that would be very dis- difficult. And especially as time goes on and everything's on camera, I feel like people don't take into account what happened right before the video camera turned on. Now you see police officers kind of acting sometimes in a hostile way or, you know, people say, Oh, why are they being such a dick or, or, you know, whatever, you know, label they're putting on them, but you have no Mm -hmm. idea what they've been dealing with all week, all day, all month. Right. And, and with that said, and and you're right, you're a hundred percent right. There's still no justification for, police brutality, as they like to call it, right? I don't care how bad that previous call was. I don't care how much of a bitch your wife at home is and that you're going through a divorce and you're going through a child custody battle. Or, I mean, I don't care how bad it is. There's no excuse for taking it out on a citizen who did something stupid, like steal beer or whatever, okay? Yeah. No excuse for it. However, with that said, I will never, and I'm glad you talked about the cameras because that is also a very accurate statement. There's always more to the story. Always. There was something that happened that led up to when the media showed that, that clip, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They they just didn't walk up and, and slam somebody on the ground. Something led up to that. Of course. They were given multiple commands and options and whatever, but they don't ever air that part. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is, and I heard a, a very popular media person on a conservative news channel okay. go off one night about uh, the incident. I think it was uh, the George Floyd incident, actually, about, well, they could have used pain compliance. They could have used this technique. They could have used that technique. You know, there was no need for them to do this. All right. Here's my answer to to those. And I, and I know this is one of your questions. And if it's okay with you, we'll just go there yeah, now. Yeah, All right. go for it. Okay. Here's, my, here's my answer to that. You weren't there. You don't know. Mm-hmm. I get that you've done martial arts training. I get that you know the pressure points. Good on you. But unless you've done, tried that crap on somebody who's high on drugs, you have no idea what you're talking about because guess what? Somebody high on drugs, they don't feel the pain. It doesn't work. You can try every martial arts move in the world short of like, you know, the sleeper, right? Mm-hmm. If you can get them in the sleeper, if, right, it, they don't work. 
because they don't feel pain. We've tased people under the influence of drugs and the taser doesn't work. And I'm, to my knowledge, to this point, the only one in my agency dumb or crazy enough, still up, it's still up for debate, <laughs> to take a hit on the newest taser. Yeah. It, how, I, how, I was curious. How's, huh? it how's that different than previous tasers? Uh, there's more technology to it. It syncs with our body cam so that when we pull the trigger, the body cam automatically comes on if it's not already running. Mm -hmm. um, it's got definitely more hit to it. It's got more power. And because what we were dealing with a lot of times were um, there's the old ones. There was two prongs that came out and both prongs had to hit accurately for it to make a connection. Yeah. Um, the new one has four prongs, only two deploy at a time. So if I pull the trigger and the first two come out and let's say one of them misses because there is a margin of an error, one of them will go right where it's supposed to. The other one, there's a slight margin of error depending on distance and trajectory and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, if, the, if, if I pull the trigger the first time and one of the prongs misses, I don't have to transition to another cartridge, which takes time. I can literally just pull the trigger again and the second two will deploy. Oh. And that, and so it, it, it's designed to be faster and more accurate and, um, and stronger for sure. Stronger. Cause it, it feels like you've been hit with a sledgehammer in the, in the back. Um, I took the hit and the full ride uh, about a year ago when they, when we first got ours and, uh, I got a pretty high pain threshold. I'm one of those people that gets on a tens unit and cranks it all the way up. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, Oh, I can't be that bad. I can handle the tens unit maxed out. Oh my God. It was rural. It was rough. It took the, I mean, literally I was in the middle of exhaling as it hit me and it stopped me from breathing. And then within seconds, cause it only lasts for a few seconds. As soon as the buzzing stopped and the, and the hit stopped, then you could hear the rest of the air leave my body. It was, it, it was definitely effective. So even um, this new one, uh, there are perps when they're when they're on on drugs, whatever that may be, they can take that hit and keep going. Uh, you know, that's a great question. We're still waiting on an answer for that one. We, um, I am not in the division at my agency that I would be privy to that information. Mm -hmm. Um. But it's my understanding that it's more effective um, because of the way it's designed. The, the, there's electrical energy. And it's not just pain compliance, mind you. It literally locks up all your muscles. Mm -hmm. Like, no matter what kind of drugs you're on, okay. you can't move. Because oh, wow. you're, you're actually, like, frozen, right? Like, I couldn't even expel the rest of the air out of my lungs. Okay. Everything just stopped for, it's only five seconds, you know, but, um, the thing is, is because the prongs are more accurate, let's say somebody is high on drugs, like crack cocaine or, or meth or one of those. Cause those are the ones that usually get really violent on. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if the, if, if what we, the, the idea of the five seconds is, is to move in as quickly as possible and put their hands behind their back and put them in handcuffs so yep. they can't fight. Okay. Um, but for some reason, if we can't do that, maybe it was me, maybe I was by myself and I didn't have a partner there to help. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do when you're, you're a one man, you know, cause you got the taser in one hand, you're going to handcuff with the other. Yeah. Um, 
we could technically just pull the trigger again and that would zap them again. The prongs are already in them. Now we just got to run the electricity. Mm-hmm. So, um, or I shouldn't say electricity. It's more of a current, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, but it's, you know, last I heard, and it's been quite a while, it's been maybe eight, six, six to 10 months ago. We, nobody in the agency had, uh, had tased anybody yet. I mean, that's how we don't tase people all the time. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's the other thing public doesn't understand. We're not out there going batshit crazy using violence and, and brutality. Do you know why? Uh, let me know why. Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's a shit ton of paperwork. <laughs> okay. It is. It's, it is a lot of paper time. If I spray somebody with, give it with pepper spray, if I taste somebody, if I use certain maneuvers, it is a lot of paperwork. Number two, it's court. None of us like going to court, especially if you work nights, right? Because it, you're sleeping during the day and that's when court is. Yeah. There's, so there's a lot of reasons. Then there's the media. Then there's the, the, you know, the spotlight on you. And none of us are really into that. We don't, we don't want that five sec. We don't want that 15 minutes of fame. We don't want five seconds of fame. We just want to do our job and go home. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, um, I mean, and that's sadly why we're seeing a lot of deaths, um, law enforcement deaths now. I mean, I heard there was one just the other day. Um, he was shot and killed because he hesitated. And he hesitated because he was afraid of making a bad decision. Now he's dead because he hesitated. We've got bad guys out there taking real guns and making them look like toys, right? Mm-hmm. And then we've got, um, uh, what was I going to say? We've got weapons out there that look like cell phones. People have no idea all the intel bulletins we see on a daily basis of the latest uh, weapon that's been designed to look like an everyday item, like a cell phone or a uh, there was a comb for a while. I mean, like a simple plastic comb can be turned into a razor sharp um, knife. That's what mm-hmm. they use in the prisons, right? They make shanks yeah. in the prisons out of just about anything. Mm-hmm. So people don't understand all of the stuff that we're familiar with that could be a weapon, especially now you take poor lighting, the dark, the street lights through the trees, the shadows. And somebody's moving and it's happening really fast. And all we're simply saying is put your hands up, put your hands up, put your hands up. How hard is it? Just stop and put your freaking hands up mm-hmm. instead of standing there arguing, waving your arms around and then reach for your waistband or in your pocket or something. And we pull, you pull out what we think is a weapon. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I think that's another thing that people don't really connect to. It's like, well, this person was shot unarmed and it becomes a problem. But when somebody is, first of all, it's split second decisions, then you're assuming that this officer or two officers, that that their life isn't in danger. Let's say if the person doesn't have a weapon on them, is it possible for a suspect to kill somebody or severely injure them without a weapon? Of course, the answer is yes. So I have a close friend. That's exactly what happened to her. She was in a coma for about two months. He had no weapon. It's very, it's a really unfair, you know, even, you know, a little bit, I'll, I'll say some of the statistics with unarmed shootings, but even that is not a realistic portrayal of what's going on because you have these unarmed people who in some cases, like we've been talking about are on drugs 
being violent against the police officer. So you're saying, okay, if you don't have a weapon or if that person doesn't have a weapon, now the police officer for some reason is not allowed to use their weapon based on the society's, what their narrative is right now. So you're saying this officer or these officers have to go into hand to hand combat with this person and hope that they have a superior skill level to them. Mm -hmm. Last time I checked, we don't have the fountain of youth. Yeah, it, it's completely unfair. So I, I don't understand why people expect officers to say, oh, well, this perp only had a knife. Why'd you have? So should an officer have a gun, a knife in case the perp has a knife? Should the officer have a gun in case the perp has a gun? Should we do fist fights in case the perp is fist fighting? It doesn't make any sense. You should eliminate. Oh, because believe it or not, we're not allowed to throw a punch to the head. That's really? considered That's considered deadly force for us. We're not even allowed to throw a punch to the head. Now we're allowed to we're allowed to uh, match the our opponents. I use the word opponent, but we're allowed to match their resistance. So, mm-hmm. if I'm taking blows to the head, then I can basically give the same thing back, right? Because I'm matching it. Mm-hmm. But let's say that I've got a guy who's maybe got me by the shirt and is trying to take me to the ground, mm-hmm. and he's bigger than me. What if my only chance to get out of the situation is to hit him in the head because he's bigger than me, right? And, you know, a lot of the people we fight, not all, most of the people we get into altercations with are young, right? Less than, I would have to venture to say maybe early 30s or younger, Right. I mean, are there exceptions to that? Of course there are. There's, you know, there's those that have spent years in prison, get out. Now they're in their forties and they go right back to their old ways again. Um, yeah. Which is it one is of my weird. worst fights, but um, you know, I'm stuck in this job for 25 years if I want to retire and we don't have a fountain of youth. In fact, our life expectancy is shorter than the average because of the stress, because of what we put our bodies through. I've been in four car crashes. I was sitting still in every single one of them. I wasn't moving. Wow. And, How's and that? People, that's people crashed right into me. Huh? Is that because you're on the side of the highway or like, um, how does that happen? I, well, one of them was because he wasn't looking where he was going. He was reaching for his breakfast sandwich that his mom made him. That was one of mine. That was my worst one. He never even hit the brakes. He just plowed right into the back of my car, totaled it. Um, then there was the one who was texting and looked up and realized he was about to rear end a car. So he changed lanes right into the lane I was in where I was in the middle of exiting my vehicle for a crash that had already happened. So I rolled up on a crash. I stopped. My car was like an angle. You know how we park them at an angle. Yeah. I was getting out on this side when he came in screaming in on my passenger side. Okay. And thank God I had the instinct to jump back in my car because if I hadn't, my car would have rolled over me. Um, so I rode it out inside the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I've been, I've been T-boned twice and rear-ended twice, sitting still in all of them. Wow. You know, and it's, it, you know, my, my, I've got bone spurs in my spine. You know, I have chronic neck and back pain. And that's what people don't understand. I mean, this job physically takes a toll on you as well. And I'm supposed to go up, go out and, and be able to outfight a 25 year old who's drunk or on drugs. And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. it ain't going to happen. I'm going to have to use one of my tools. I'm going to have to, 
just because of simple age and, and size and strength and ability. Yeah, I would say that every single encounter that you come to is a life and death situation. And whether or not with hindsight, you say, oh, well, okay, that one wasn't life or death. In that moment, you don't know. So right. for me, if I'm in that situation and I have a gun and I'm being attacked and at any moment I feel like this is not going my way, there's nothing stop. I want to get home to my family and kids, you know, if I'm in that mm -hmm. situation. So it just seems like a very yeah, un unfair. Uh, it is. Outcome. It is because we are trained at the end of the day, when we go through our training, um, we are trained to go home, to go home. You know, it's the old saying of, I would rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. Mm -hmm. And it's true, you know, and I've, and I've told lots of bad guys that cause they'll, they'll sit there and, and they'll try me as a woman and oh, you're not going to do anything. And it's like, they practically dare me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that they want us to shoot them. So, in the hopes that they'll survive so they can turn around and sue us. I swear. I think that's their mentality sometimes. I mean, I'm and I just look at them and I go, I go, don't try me. I have a family to go home to and you ain't stopping me, mm -hmm. you know? And, and usually if it, you know, and I don't say it in a um, threatening way. I don't say it in a, I dare you way. I say it just in a very matter of fact way. Mm -hmm. Like you are not worth me not going home. That's, that's all there is to it. I mean, if anyone has anybody that they love, even saying that in the nicest way possible, I think that that can hit home with everybody and, and think, mm -hmm. mm, do I really want to test this? Because it's true. Am I worth this person not going home? What will they do to make sure that I don't stop them from that? So it does seem, you know, like you wouldn't have to say that in a threatening way, but just a matter of fact, this is the situation to get them to respond in a way that you want. Uh, yeah. It's usually the young ones that, that will try us. I've never had anybody of age mature, you know, the mature mm -hmm. I've had to get a little sassy, mm -hmm. sassy a few times. Cause being nice, wasn't working. I'm always nice first. Always. I tell, I kind of joke around. I go, I'm 51% sweetheart, 51% sweetheart, 49% bitch. Do not flip bitch switch. Right. <laughs> You know, and I, and I say it as a joke, but there's some, there's some truth to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I tell people, I'm like, look, I'm nice until it's time not to be nice anymore. Please I don't mean, push me there. You, you know, you have to, right. If you're in this profession, you have to have that switch yeah. where you can turn into a different person. I would think. Right. Yeah. And, and it works. And sometimes I will use humor and I'll get somebody to go, okay, all right. You know, cause mm -hmm. a lot of them, they, they, they consider it a game. I've literally taken people to jail and they've, you know, laughed in the back seat. Mm -hmm. And go, well, you got me this time, but you won't get me next. <laughs> yeah. It's and, and they're and they're serious. They're drug dealers, you know. You caught me today, but you won't catch me tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we kind of we talked about so many things that I want to ask questions on. I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna step back to that George Floyd situation because I am curious about just kind of about general policy within the police force. Um, you know, if, if they were looking at the the autopsy, he apparently had a extraordinary amount of fentanyl to where if they were to have found him in an apartment dead, they said that the cause of death would have been a drug overdose. And there wasn't sufficient evidence showing that there was damage to the throat that, that caused any sort of suffocation, suffocation death. But yeah. So the, the, the narrative is that he with the knee on the neck situation and he couldn't breathe 
the situation was they went to put him in the car. I'm, I'm sure you know this. I just kind of want to go over it. Real I've quick. seen the video. So he, yeah, yeah. Uh, so for anyone that hasn't seen, he, they go, he, you know, they're talking to him. They're being very polite. They put him in the car. Is that okay to keep going? Can you give me one second? Yeah, it's okay. It's really hot in here. So they got to figure out what's going on. No problem. Apologies, sorry. I'll be right back. You have another moment. No, no, no. Yeah, I don't know what happened, but it got so hot in here. My dog was panning. I was sweating. And I'm like, normally my house is like a refrigerator. And I'm like, I think I'm having a hot flash. And I'm like, no, it's freaking hot in here. Uh -huh. So I just cranked the AC way down. Okay. Um, so are you ready to keep going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. So, Am I okay uh, like this? Yeah, no problem. It's fine. Okay. Um, so basically, just for anyone that doesn't know, uh, with the George Floyd situation, if you watch the whole tape, they they are confronting him they go to put him in the car um he ends up getting in the car he's saying he wants the window down they convince him to get in they put the window down they're being very polite with him then he says he wants out of the car because he can't breathe uh they oblige him they pull him out of the car and he wants to be on the ground they put him on the ground um and i guess the controversy comes in when the officer then decides puts the knee on the neck and whether or not that was restricting his breathing, he was saying he couldn't breathe while he was sitting in the car before he ever was on the ground. So, I, I mean, all these facts, in my opinion, matter. But, of course, you know, to the media or certain media outlets, it, it doesn't matter. And to the narrative against the self-proclaimed experts. Yes. So fr from your perspective, um, just based on strict policy on what police officers are supposed to do in that situation – where did they go wrong? Did they go wrong? And how do you feel about, you know, he seemed compliant to an extent. He's arguing with them. He does go on the ground willingly. Where, what, was there a problem from your perspective and what you know about what the police are supposed to do in that situation? I think, um, mind you, we talked about this before. I do not offer opinions on any of these situations mm -hmm. anywhere um, because I wasn't there. I will always say, wait for the evidence. 
wait for the, you know, the, the autopsy report, you know, wait for the investigation to be completed. Um, I've had, uh, I've been the subject of, um, media, media, uh, of the media period, mm-hmm. um, for a situation I got in many years ago. And what was fortunate for me was, is the community, um, had my back. The community was familiar with the individual that I was dealing with and, they um, were the ones to, when the media asked them questions about what had happened, were the ones to say, you know, we support, we support her because we know the person that she was dealing with and this person's been a problem for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was lucky in that aspect. Um, that was many years ago, way before all this recent stuff started. Um, from what I've seen of the video, and I've seen most of it, what I'm not a hundred percent comfortable on commenting on is the timeline because I've seen so many versions of it. I'm, I don't know the the true timeline Mm -hmm. of how much time went by from this clip to that clip to that clip. I mean, was it five minutes? Was it 15 minutes? Was it 30 minutes? I mean, I don't know. Um, and that's why I'm not really comfortable offering an opinion, but what I will tell you is this, anytime we encounter someone that we believe to be under the influence of drugs to the point that they are acting that way, we are to call for rescue. Now, are we allowed to restrain that person? Yes, we are. And the reason for that is that they, A, don't hurt anyone, and B, they don't hurt themselves, mm-hmm. right? So we're allowed to restrain them um, while we wait for rescue to respond, to evaluate them. Mm-hmm. Does it take more than one or two officers? Damn right it does. I've been there. I have been tossed around like a rag doll when it was me and my partner who played college football. And we were fighting with a guy who was six foot, 230 pounds high on coke, crack cocaine. And it was like we were trying to wrestle a world-class, you know, rodeo bull to the ground with our bare hands. I mean, this guy had super human strength. And that's what drugs do to people, you know. They, they get their adrenaline going. You hear about little old ladies picking cars up and because of adrenaline? Well... I mean, this is basically an, a drug-induced, like, adrenaline, and they just get crazy strong. Mm-hmm. So when we're f- dealing with someone who's six foot, 200 and some pounds, it's, it, it'll take four or five officers to get them under control, and we're taught how to do it. One person is to control the head because where the head goes, the, the, fo- the body will follow. So, yes, one person is in charge of the head, turning it to the side so that they can breathe, right? Mm-hmm. Another person is to, um, one or two people are to take control of the hands, sometimes two, depending on how hard they're fighting, and then one or two people at the legs. And there's a particular way we're supposed to hold them down where they can't hurt themselves or anybody else while we wait for the paramedics to respond. Then we assist them with putting them on the gurney where they're then strapped to the gurney, right, and taken to the hospital for what might be uh, a cocaine psychosis or 
you know, some sort of, you know, drug overdose. Because what people don't realize is we've seen people drop dead. I mean, just drop dead. And this right up until the second that they dropped dead, they were fighting. Mm-hmm. They were fighting. Some of them have been gunshot right in the chest and they keep coming because the drugs are so strong in them that they, A, they don't feel the pain and B, that adrenaline is rushing so hard that it's, it's insane. So that's why when people say, oh, why don't you just shoot him in the leg or, you know, why'd you have to shoot him five times or whatever? When you're dealing with somebody who's on drugs, you shoot them until they drop. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, something bad is going to happen. I'm not talking about just being on. I'm not talking about if they're unarmed. I'm talking about if they're on drugs and they're armed, whether it's a knife, whether it's a bat, whether it's a base, you know, a, um, Lord, I've come up against people with samurai swords and I mean, all kinds of things that could be used as a, as a weapon. Oh, I remember one guy picked up a bar stool. Could a bar stool be a deadly weapon? I mean, I would think so. With enough force hit in the head, yeah, it could. Mm-hmm. It definitely could. It can be. They don't understand. A weapon can really be anything if I mean, if, if used I, correctly I, or the I right way. I understand why people don't understand that a fist can't be. You're, you're, you're out in public and you get hit right. If you fall and hit your head in the right way, you can die from a simple mm-hmm. punch. You know, and I, I've seen that happen. It, it, I yeah. just and, and even if you don't, okay, let's say that you get hit in a punch and you get knocked out. I've lost martial arts my entire life and you can get knocked out from the slightest, slightest of punches. If it, if it lands right, or you're not expecting it, mm-hmm. you're unconscious, you've got a gun on you. You've got whatever else on you, your body, your limp, they can do anything to you that they want. So mm-hmm. it just, you remember the it, Trayvon Martin case? Uh, yeah. That was the, the, the kid that was shot by the civilian night security guard or whatever he was for the, you know, people people don't understand. Trayvon was on top of this guy, and I'm not a big fan of the dude. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I've seen the evidence. And Trayvon was on top of this guy, and he was slamming his head into the curb. And he had the gashes and the evidence and the marks to prove that he legitimately was in fear for his life. That's why he. That's why he wasn't convicted. Yeah, I read through. Evidence proved. That's why I don't understand people just ignoring evidence. I read through that and I was trying to understand the other side and I'm, I'm like look, going through, okay, here's the established injuries. Here's the story from both sides. I, I just can't understand how you can't connect the dots that this person feels like their life is in danger. What do I need to survive? Like, right. If, if you can't win that altercation without a weapon, then death is on the door. Depending on well, how the problem the is wants to go with it. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's and that's the difference between us and and a, and a lot of other people is we're using our common sense and our and our intelligence and our open mindedness to be willing to step back and look at all the facts. Where the media and a lot of other people they want to make everything a race issue, mm-hmm. they want to make everything a police brutality issue, you know, and they don't give they don't provide all the facts they give they give the facts they want to give to support the agenda that they you know are trying to support whether it's you know oh police are bad or we're racist or um 
what's the other one? Um, then you got, you know, with the Trayvon Martin case, you know, a lot of people jumped on that bandwagon as well. He shouldn't have had a gun. So it's anti-gun, mm. you know, I am a victim. I am not a victim. I got to stop saying that. I am a, now a survivor of uh, sexual trauma. That was, that was one of my traumas that, that I never properly dealt with and that caught up with me in 2017. Mm -hmm. I never told anybody. And it just, when all those traumas came out, so did that one. Right. And that was the original. And um, I am a huge proponent of the second amendment because I not only want to, even if I wasn't a cop, I've been carrying a gun long before I came, became a cop mm -hmm. because I don't ever want to be a victim again, ever. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And I want my daughter one day to be able to protect herself. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, guns don't kill people. People kill people, you know, okay. and sometimes it's, you know, often it's not murder, it's self-defense. Mm -hmm. But why people don't understand that, I'm like... Okay, you're 120 pounds, five foot four, and you're attacked by a six foot, 200 pound athletic man. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Really? Yeah, that is very limited. I, and, and it's frustrating when they say, well, there's tasers. It's very frustrating when I hear stuff like that because a taser is not an end all especially one that you can buy. You know, I'm not super versed in the different levels of tasers and what civilian can buy versus what police force has. But if my wife, I'm not married, but if I was married, let's say I'm married to my current girlfriend who's a hundred pound little person. <laughs> she, mm -hmm. she, she has no chance. She'll be lucky if she, even if she has a gun, if she can get her hand into her purse quick enough to pull that thing out. Now let's magnify the chance of her dealing with this by saying, she needs to operate this taser properly and be able to hold it against this person. I want they're going to take it away. I want the quickest possible solution. What can she do? And they say, well, well a gun can get taken away and used against her. Maybe, maybe so can a taser and so can other. You things. want my answer to that? Yeah. You can buy another purse, shoot a hole right through it. Oh yeah. See, that's knowledge. I never even thought of you just, yeah, my friends used to teach me, why like, do you carry such cheap purses? I'm like, because I don't mind replacing a cheap purse. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's that's my plan. Because that first round is the one that matters. Mm -hmm. You get that first round off, and if it goes through the purse, so what? Then you pull it out, and then you, you, if you need to finish it, you finish it, right? Mm -hmm. But that first round is at least going to buy you a matter of a second. Which, believe it or not, a second is a long time yeah. in, a, in, a, a second. in a moment like yeah. that. Yeah. Exactly. When, when splits yeah. matter a second, it's quite a bit of time. Um, exactly. Can you say, it, it, we were talking about George Floyd and kind of the, the policy for police. Is there something that uh, people are complaining, why is the knee on the neck? Is, is there something that tells police officers, hey, instead of putting it on the upper back, put it on the neck? Is there any, is there a reason that he... Was it really on his neck if you look really, really close? It was on his shoulder. Okay. So, yeah. So that's the other thing, the dispute of where the knee actually was. Um, and if you watch really closely, and I mean like frame by frame, slow it down. I am of the strong opinion that he did not have all of his weight on George Floyd. He had just enough to keep his head down. And like I said, we're taught where the head goes, the body will follow. 
Mm-hmm. So George was, from what I'm remembering, George was trying to get his hands underneath of him to push himself up. He was trying to lift up. Well, if your head is being pushed to the ground, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. So it's my understanding that the knee was more like here to the side of the neck, more on the upper shoulder right here, right? Yeah. And um, I know the people in your audience can't see that, but I'm, I'm pointing to the back of my shoulder, not quite, you know, just to the side of the spine. Mm-hmm. Um. Number one, if you're saying I can't breathe, you're breathing. That's what I thought because I know yeah. I've done jujitsu, I've done martial arts. If somebody, if I can't breathe, I you're tapping out, right? I can't. I, can't, I cannot speak. If I if I can speak, I can breathe. But exactly. People if you're talking, we tell people that all the time. If you're talking, you're breathing. Yeah. You may be having a panic attack. You may be feeling like you're suffocating. You might be feeling, because I'm claustrophobic, so I do know what that feels like. And it does suck. Mm-hmm. Note, I won't doubt that. But he wasn't being suffocated because he was talking yeah. um, and, he, he was and like, yelling. Talking, he was, yeah, he was yelling. He was calling out yeah. for his mom. And quite, it wasn't a whisper. It was quite a very... yes. He had a lung full of airs. He was having a panic attack. And my suspicions were from the very beginning was that I thought the autopsy was going to show he died of cardiac arrest, mm-hmm. which was going to be either drug induced or, you know, anxiety. Cause I didn't know what his health history was. Right. Um, but I can tell you the first autopsy I ever saw was of an inmate who dropped dead of a heart attack while playing basketball during recreation time. But he had a long history of drug abuse and that does do take a toll on the heart. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, ah, he's, it's, it's going to be a heart attack. That's what I thought it was going to be. Um, but fentanyl will definitely do the trick. You know, that's, that stuff's wicked dangerous. Yeah. And it, it just seems so. that the autopsy, the results just don't, because everything that you're saying matches what the autopsy found. You know, as far as they they didn't see the damage to the neck that they would have seen if it was a, you know, we already said, and uh, having so much fentanyl in his system. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just strange. Uh, And I guess this kind of sad. Yeah, it kind of this kind of bleeds into uh, the media and the narrative that, you know, I wanted to talk about with police being systemically racist, targeting black individuals. So uh, statistically, just real quick, just kind of give you like a quick information and anyone that's listening. So there's like 300, roughly, this is give or take a little bit, obviously, but 370 million police interactions per year. And uh, of those, I'm going to go to 2018. In 2018, there was um, 16 unarmed uh, African-Americans and there's 22 unarmed uh, whites. So out of 370 million interactions, the media is running with this narrative and they're saying, you know, you have uh, what Don Lemon who goes on CNN, who's supposed to be a trusted network saying that it's not fair that individuals have to be afraid to walk out of their house and being shot, but you have 370 million interactions with 16 unarmed uh, fatalities from from gunshots, and we've already talked about all of these 
this significant danger of people being unarmed and on drugs. So that 16 unarmed doesn't mean they're peacefully sitting on a bench, not minding their business. Mm-hmm. With that, statistically, I heard this a few years ago, and I, I looked it up and did the math myself. Um, you are a, a black man is statistically more likely to be stung to death by bees than to be attacked or to be unarmed and shot by police. So you, you've got so many other things that are higher up on the totem pole of, of what endangers black lives along with their own community. But the issue is let's, let's raise a fuss. Let's condemn all police officers for these very minute, insignificant, not, I'm sorry, not insignificant, but this very, very, very small amount, amount of unarmed officers or unarmed um, people being shot. When you hear stuff like this that completely ignores these statistics, as somebody in that field, how do you respond to it? How do you, how do you move forward? Like I, I would just, my frustration would, it, even not being involved, it, it peaks. So how do you deal with that? And, and what do you think about it? Um, well, I'm retiring, so that should speak volumes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm retiring ahead of time. I'm taking a significant hit to my retirement just to leave early. Um, but I, I've, I've gotten to a point where I can do it financially. I can afford to do it, even though it is a hit. I could be greedy and I could stay, but what toll would it take on me mentally you know, and my mental well-being. And to me, I'm, I'm choosing my happiness over my bank account. Um, but as far as like what you're talking about, I mean, it makes me angry because I get into these conversations uh, every once in a while when I kind of get, um, usually I get blindsided for some reason. I don't know how it happens, but it does because I try to avoid it really. But um and I get angry and I'm like, look, I'll be, I'm going to be honest with you. I am truly colorblind. I do not notice what race someone is. Mm-hmm. What I do notice is how they carry themselves and how they present themselves. For example, mm-hmm. if they're wearing baggy pants to the point where I see their entire butt and their boxer shorts hanging out the top of their waistband. I don't care what color they are. Because let's face it, that's a trend now. We see all races dressing that way, right? Mm-hmm. I think to myself, that's a dirt bag. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do. What respectable person dresses that way? Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, nobody has to agree with me on it. And that's fine. We're all entitled to our opinions. But it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with how they present and carry themselves. I mean, honestly, if I was an employer and somebody, somebody, let's say somebody white came in dressed that way. And then somebody black came in dressed professionally. It's all how they present themselves all day long. I'm going to choose the black guy who had the self-respect to dress appropriately, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, now let's take it into their behavior. If they're cursing like a sailor, acting disrespectful, 
Um, you know, playing vulgar music. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking of all these scenarios, right? Yeah. I don't look at their race. I look at how they behave. Mm -hmm. um, and that is where I form my opinions. And it goes right back to Martin Luther King. You know, and I know I'm going to mess the quote up. I always do because I have a terrible memory. But it comes basically down to, you know, he looked forward to a day that uh, people no longer judged each other by the color of their skin, but on the something of their character. Um, content of their character. The content of their character. And that is a thousand percent true. And that is what I tried desperately to do. I pulled over a guy mm, about a year or so ago on the interstate and I hate making traffic stops on the interstate because they're dangerous, right? I'm just trying to get to work. Mm -hmm. And he passed me. I'm in a marked patrol car. He passed me like I was standing still. And everybody's looking at me like, aren't you going to do something? Like, mm -hmm. oh, God. I really didn't want to pull him over because, I mean, I was like, I just want I didn't even have my coffee yet. I just wanted to get to work, you know, but now I got to stop this idiot for passing a cop car like it was standing still on the interstate, right? Yeah. So I pulled him over. He gets out, African American. Baggy pants, boxer shorts out of the top, exactly what I just described, right? Yeah. Long dreadlocks. Not that that matters. Just describing what I saw. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, not to interrupt you, but I, I want you to continue the story. Uh, the, the, brains, the, the way that our brain categorizes information is on patterns. It's a human instinct to take patterns from what we know to be information, whether the information we have is true or false. Our brain categorizes it in a certain way. So if, if we know statistically someone with this demeanor is more likely to do X, then our brain categorizes that and then raises yeah. our, our awareness of it. So people will say, oh, that's racism. No, that's statistical analysis. Like that, that's just the way our brains naturally categorize. So, but anyways, well, continue your... Well, it also, I mean, anybody that wants to question this, go turn on, uh, well... I don't want to name any channels, but go go watch some gangster rap. Go watch some gangster rap videos. Look what they how what they're wearing. Look at what they're doing, pointing guns, you know, and acting extremely inappropriate. Mm -hmm. How do you not expect me to have a, a certain opinion when that is how that culture presents itself, right? The the, the gangster culture, mm -hmm. and I'm talking all races, right? Yeah, there's many um, more. Yeah. I, I get what yeah. Hope you get what I'm saying. Anyone that hears that knows what you're talking about. Yeah. So, and if they don't, they can Google it because it's all over the place. You can't, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so pull this guy over. He gets out of the car. He has an attitude right off the bat. You can tell he doesn't like the police. And I'm in the attitude of, dude, in my mind, I'm saying, dude, I didn't want to pull you over. I didn't want to, and I don't feel like writing a ticket. I just want to get to work and get my coffee. That's really all I cared about in that moment. Mm -hmm. but now you've literally like forced me to pull you over. Right. Mm -hmm. And he gets out of the car with an attitude, starts yelling at me. And I just put my hand up and I just said, hold on. I said, we can go the hard way or we can go the easy way. I said, I'm going to let you choose. I said, here's the deal. I'm just trying to get to work. Clearly you're in a hurry to get somewhere so much. So, that you almost blew the doors off of my patrol car. Mm -hmm. I said, how did you not expect me to pull you over? I said, everybody was looking at me like, ain't I going to do something? 
Mm-hmm. I said, so this is how this is going to go. I've done my job. I've pulled you over. I said, I can write you a ticket if you want to be a jerk. I said, or you can let me lecture you and I'll tell you to have a nice day. You choose. I'll wait. And he was just like, like he didn't know what to say because that he did not expect me to say that. Mm-hmm. He was expecting me to be a jerk, write him a ticket, run him, you know, and I, I said, and then after I got done with that, I said, all right, now I have to ask you, and I ask everybody this, do you have any warrants? Am I going to get any unfortunate surprises when I go back and I check you? Because you know, I have to check you. He says, no, no, I'm good. I'm clean. And I'm like, all right. And he goes, but I have been arrested before. And I'm like, okay, thank you for your honesty. I ran him. He was fine. He didn't have anything, you know, outstanding. Hand him his license back and said, please slow down. I said, don't, don't pass any more marked patrol cars. I said, that was, that wasn't very bright. And he started laughing and he shook my hand. He put his hand out and he goes, I want to thank you. Mm-hmm. And I said, for what? And he goes, you're all right. And that was all he said was, you're all right. Mm-hmm. I said, we're all all right. I said, you just got to give us a chance. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, you treat me with respect. You're going to get respect back. I said, but you get out of the car with an attitude like you did. I said, you're lucky you got me because another cop might not have given you that chance. Mm-hmm. I said, it's all in how you present yourself. Yeah. I and think, that was the end of that. I think that's a big thing that's missing. It's like you'd be amazed what you can get when you're respectful to people. And that's not everything. That's not just dealing with the police. That's every single area. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I won't go. Of all races. Yeah, yeah. From, of all race. It doesn't matter what color you are. You treat other people the way you want to be treated. And nine times out of ten you're going to get the right result. Mm-hmm. You know, is there that one out of 10 that's a jerk? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'll tell you, I tell people this all the time, you know, and my, my, my peers don't like it, but it's a true story. When I turned 25 years old, I got five tickets that year. I hated cops. I thought they were all of nothing but a bunch of bullies with a, on a power trip with a gun and badge. Mm-hmm. Last thing I thought I'd ever be in a million years was a cop. But I got talked into it because it suited my personality. And I'm glad I did it. It's been a good career for me. But I promised myself when I put on that uniform, I was never going to be that guy. And and I think I've done a pretty good job of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had to be a bitch a few times, but only when forced to. My vast majority of the time, I've had more people thank me in the, on the way to jail because I treated them nicely. I'm like, well, you didn't give me a hard time. It's pretty simple, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the problems with this narrative of, police are all bad people don't actually know any police and <laughs> they they characterize them as if they're not human like you're saying earlier we we are human you know for me i've been pulled over several times and there was one time when i got pulled over where the cop was just being very rude to me and i was mm-hmm. yes sir no sir sorry sir i apologize very very nice i'm not going to go into the story but he still he yelled at me like, I don't know what happened before that, but he was very pissed off at me. I had accelerated through a parking lot. I was a teenager and I went in and then I took a right turn. And instead of going into the nearest lane, I double laned across when I took my right turn. So he was just extremely angry at me. If I had been uh, black or any minority, I might have thought, man, I was so nice to that guy. He's clearly a racist. Mm-hmm. Because the narrative I always hear is that the police force is racist. So if you're constantly have this narrative drove into your mind, mm-hmm. puts this in the top of your mind, and you're more likely to assume this behavior, this trait of this individual, when really maybe he's just having a bad day, or maybe he's just that 
that low percentage. That's just maybe he saw somebody get hurt really bad doing what you were doing or as a result of doing what you were doing. Hmm. And it triggered. I mean, I saw a 10 year old get killed by her own mother in a target parking lot because hmm. the mom took a turn too fast and rolled the, the, the vehicle over and the little girl was ejected out the window and it was horrific. Hmm. And she was doing 35 mile an hour and just took the turn too sharp, you know? So I would imagine if I saw, for example, somebody driving similar to the way that mother was who by the way was drunk when that happened mm -hmm. um i probably would have been really really upset too only because i've seen what can happen as a result of it you know what i mean when you're a kid especially a teenager you think you're invincible oh you know we hear all kids do it oh that'll never happen to me or you yeah. know that that only happens to other people and that's that's pretty normal for that age group right mm -hmm. um so it, it's, you know, and I try to tell people all the time, I'm like, look, you know, these are life lessons that we all have to learn. Mm -hmm. But you're right. If you had been a minority or black and your parents had been telling you cops are racist, cops are racist, cops are racist, you got to be extra careful because you're black. You're going to believe that. Mm -hmm. I truly think it's a cultural thing. I think it's something that's been handed down generation after generation after generation to where they believe that we are racist, mm -hmm. you know, and we, it's like we have to go above and beyond to prove to them we're not, which to, to convince them that everything they've been taught isn't correct, right? And I don't think that's possible. I mean, I mean, no, that's not true. It is possible. It's totally possible, but it, it can't happen in a matter of five minutes. It takes time. Yeah, it's a very severe challenge. And I've even gone through the statistics and I've talked about, you know, comparing victimization statistics to um, uh, the, the, uh, the statistics of crimes committed. So it's like, well, those statistics aren't right or they're biased. But if you follow that line of thinking, that means that all those calls with victims, which the biggest perk, uh, the, the biggest group that commits crimes against a certain groups are this, the same group. So whites commit crimes against whites the most. Blacks commit crimes against blacks the most. So if you're saying that the crime from this group, the statistics are not accurate, you're also saying that the victimization statistics are not accurate. So then you're discounting all the victims that are calling the police. So there's like a it, – it's a very I – mean, I mean it's an, you have to have the conversation. You have to take time, and it's not something you can get through quickly. I mean, I'm trying to go through it a little bit quickly now, but I, for me to break it down and really go through all the numbers, you can look at it and say the statistics do not it's matter. Very complex. Yeah, it's very complex. Yeah. Um, so the, the last thing I want to get into, because we are running a little bit short on time, um, I want to talk about the, the idea based on this year and spurring from George Floyd, um, the idea of pr police brutality and what do you think there is a police brutality issue and how do you feel about defunding the police versus reforming the police? A lot of politicians and activists are now saying defund, defund, defund. For me personally, I think that is absolutely the worst possible thing. And we've seen that already take place and those things have already been reversed. We talked about that before because places that defunded the police ran into huge issues with crime spiking and they had to reverse it and, fund and bring back officers on and 
you know, just bring the funding back to where it needs to be. So what I would simply it? answer the question with a question. Mm -hmm. Who are you going to call when you're in fear for your life because you think someone is breaking in your home when someone is attacking your loved one, when your loved one is attacking you, mm -hmm. who are you going to call? Because if you defund the police, that just means there's going to be less cops on the street, mm -hmm. but the same calls for service, the same amount of citizens, the same amount of alarm calls and property calls and everything else. The calls aren't going to go away. You're just reducing your resources to respond to them. I mean, statistically, the calls are going to increase. Oh, they're absolutely going to increase because the bad guys are going to take advantage of this situation. Mm -hmm. We already have that problem anyway. Yeah. You know? Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't really feel comfortable going into detail on that, but I can guarantee you for years we have been dealing with cr criminal groups who plan crimes and find ways to put us in a situation where we're not where we need to be when we need to be there. Does that make sense? And uh, they take advantage of it. Diversionary tactics, things of that nature. Uh, how do they go about, are, are you saying, how, how would they go just hypothetically, don't, you don't need to give me a real example, but just hypothetically, how would they go about doing that? Call in a bogus call in a certain area, which would require a large police presence. Mm. Send all of our resources to that location and they go to the opposite side where we, they pulled them from and they commit the crime that they need to commit. Mm, okay. That they want to commit. That makes sense. They they know by doing that they're going to slow our response time down, getting back to where we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it just. But that you know, going beyond that, then they said, you know, oh, we want to send social workers on calls. Yeah, that's not going to work because a social worker is for after the fact. After we've gotten control of the situation, the situations calmed down. I by all means, social workers take over. But you cannot send a social worker into a critical crisis situation. What if the person is high on drugs? What if they are going to choke literally, you know, the life out of you? It's just, it's, it's a huge liability. And then they've talked about privatizing police. Well, I would love to see how that's going to go because then you're going to have a bunch of Paul Blarts out there who couldn't, qualify as real cops right no seriously think about it yeah. you're gonna get all of the paul blarts who can't can't make it you know get hired as a real cop because they couldn't pass a psyche eval or they couldn't make it through the physical or they couldn't you know whatever mm -hmm. and and those are that's that's what you're gonna get mm -hmm. it's just it's just a terrible idea um do we need more training of course we do. And I mean that in the sense that you can never have enough training mm -hmm. ever. I mean, Navy SEALs, SWAT teams, that's all they do. The majority of their time is spent training. So when that real call comes, they are prepared. For us, it would take a ton of money to give every agency the manpower it needs to give us the amount of time 
to give us more time than what we already have mm -hmm. to train. I mean, we already already train several times a year. You know, it's not like we don't. We train at least once a quarter. We have some type of training mm -hmm. uh, gun range at, at the range. Um, some people are just better shots than others. Some people struggle with it. I'm not. I've been shooting expert my whole life. I've taught it. And so I, you know, I can't speak, but I've seen people struggle, whether it's their eyesight or whatever. Um, they, it's, there's some people just aren't that good at it, but they go, but they're good at other things. You know, I've seen guys that are badasses, I know, in, in defensive tactics and in martial arts, but they couldn't, they couldn't deescalate a situation to save their lives. Mm-hmm. Because their 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 egos get in the way, and they don't know how to be calm, and they don't really how to carry on a communication. You know, we we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Again, we're not programmable robots; we're humans. Yeah. And it, and there's been times where I've been trying to deal with somebody, and I'm pretty good at deescalating, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, they don't like me. Maybe I remind them of their ex-wife. Maybe I remind them of their mother. I don't know. From the minute I've arrived, they didn't like me, and I had no idea why. Right? It happens. Yeah. I have no. It's. I don't let my ego get in the way. I'll have no problem looking at another officer and going, "You know what? Why don't you take this one?" They don't seem to want to talk to me. Mm -hmm. I don't let it. I don't take it personal. You can't. It seems like all the options that you, you've talked about, and all the options that you know, I'm kind of writing down some questions that I want to go through quickly. Is uh, all the options seem like it's stuff that requires more funding. seems like defunding mm -hmm. is the worst possible option that will have in, in every area. I can't think of a single area where you'd say, well, defunding the police is going to make anything better. Um, no, it's not. So whether you had social workers accompanying police, so police handle the situation and then the social worker is there for backup or, or whatever for those cops that have a assistance. strong ego, some sort of assistance. I could see that as an option, but it's dangerous. The first time a social worker catches a stray bullet or gets attacked and held hostage, mm -hmm. it's a serious issue. Um, you talked about privatizing the police force. Uh, I've, I've heard about that. I don't know how that, you mentioned the, the, the Paul Blart situation. I totally agree, but maybe there's a way to make the same regulations for the police force within this so you cannot be qualified. Okay. Uh, what, is there any way to, to, to work that? Okay, so let's look at that scenario. Mm -hmm. It takes a certain kind of person to be a police officer, regardless of who is writing the pay, signing the paycheck, whether it's the government signing the paycheck or whether it's corporate America signing the paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's that person in that uniform. Yeah. So only thing that's going to happen with privatizing is you're going to have a bunch of government agencies shut down their law enforcement agencies, and the exact same people wearing the uniforms are just going to turn around and apply for the private job. With the, you're going to have the same people, just a different person signing the paycheck because it happens in contract government work all the time. When you they leave this company do and they go to this company because they got the new contract yep. and they're doing the same job just under a different boss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you say that, it does seem like common sense that would happen. For some reason, that wasn't the first thing that popped into my mind. But yeah, that makes sense. So you're going to have the exact same people doing the same job because they're going to be a bunch of people laid off or unemployed and suddenly a bunch of private businesses or whatever 
are going to. And who are they going to hire? They're going to hire the ones that are already trained to do the job rather than spend the money on sending them through the training. Yeah. So, okay. So that makes complete sense. Uh, the last one, I guess. So, um, you know, Andrew Yang uh, talked about every police officer should be like, I think he said blue belt or purple. I think he said blue belt in jujitsu. I can't remember exactly. And then Jocko Williams or Wilco said that he, I can't remember the percentage as well, but it was like 20 or 30% of their on-duty time should be with training, which obviously both of those situations require much more funding. But what do you think of a situation like that where maybe there's different levels of police officer? So this level of police officer can only respond to this type of call. I know that calls are unpredictable, so this is kind of obviously speculation that maybe would fail if tried. I don't know, but what do you think about requiring people to be, you know, a blue belt or in, in combat before they can go to certain calls or requiring a 30% training while on, on the call. What do you think about that? I think it's a great idea, but unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, why is it? I don't know the first guy and, 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 Uh, but I'm assuming he's a martial arts expert. No, no, not at all. Actually, uh, Andrew Yang, he was, uh, one of the democratic, um, uh, oh god that guy yeah, yeah, yeah. oh my god the one that wants the that's the guy that got up on the debate and said well i know a lot of uh doctors because i'm chinese <laughs> yeah. is that the guy yeah uh, oh my god he's that the, was like one of the funniest things i heard in the whole election he's the one from um, the ubi and that you know one of the things i think he's an interesting guy i don't support hardly any of his policies but i did think that the police blue belt one was interesting It's unrealistic, and here's why. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a ton of law enforcement officers, Mm -hmm. a lot, who have well beyond a blue belt in martial arts. Mm -hmm. It's very, very popular Mm -hmm. in the law enforcement community, and from what I'm gathering, I think it's getting pretty popular in the the firefighter service as well. they practice a lot of uh, jujitsu and and all of that. I mean, they are, but they are also vast majority men. Mm-hmm. They enjoy it, and um, a lot of them are um, either it's their hobby, or they're in a in a position at work where their their whole world revolves around physical fitness and a lot of them are like you know SWAT special ta- you know special response things of that nature um where they you know they get to do it at work they have the mats they have you know they have all the resources they need to practice this pretty much as much whenever and as much as they want and good on them i think it's great then you've got your detectives who are already extraordinarily overworked mm-hmm. and um have a desk job and are on call out and don't get any sleep and then still have a wife and kids at home. And um, the last thing they want to do is spend more time away from the huge caseload they already have, you know, doing this stuff. Now there might be the one in the group that does it. Great. That's his thing. But we do not have time. Literally we do not have time to do this stuff on duty because that takes us away from what our real job is. Now, if they want to hire enough manpower mm. to give us the extra bodies we need, 
to allow us that time to work out because that's basically what it is. We would consider that a, a physical fitness workout type thing mm -hmm. um, to give us the time to do that sort of thing on duty. I know a ton of us would love it, whether it was doing martial arts, whether it was getting on the treadmill, whether it was we have a gym in every one of our facilities. Mm -hmm. They very, very rarely get used because we aren't allowed to do that stuff on duty. We work, the patrol people work 11 and a half to 12 hour shifts, often 13 or 14 by the time their reports and, you know, things are done, they're exhausted. They got a wife and kids at home. You know, they, we have lives. Yeah. And we're, you know, we'll, like I used to just work off, I work out on my days off. Mm -hmm. um, and then the older we get, the you know, I've had my nose broken twice. I've been in a few car crashes. I'm getting older. I've got arthritis the older we get, the harder it is. And, you know, I love Jocko Willie. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Wilco. Yeah. I, I, he's a, he's a seal and I have a lot of friends that are seals obviously because of where I worked mm -hmm. and I, and I've had this conversation with several of them mm -hmm. and even among themselves, as the years go by our bodies, we get older. And we're not what we once is the Toby Keith song goes, you know, I, I'm not as good as I once was. Right. And it's true. Yeah. Now, Jocko is the exception to the rule. And, you know, a lot and there and there are that small percentage of the most elite that will stay badasses till one of them. I love him to death. You know, he's 80 years old. I talked to him last night and he is a god in the uh, in the Navy SEAL community. And he's still tough as nails. Yeah. But they are the small exception to the rule. Yeah, the one. You know? Huh? Yeah, it's like the 1%. It's Yeah, they are the 1%. And I know to, to them, they think that's normal. To them, they think if they can do it, everybody can do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, and we could. But at what cost? Mm -hmm. Away from our families, away from our kids. I don't enjoy martial arts. I have to do it once a year. Um, and get on the mat and roll around with a bunch of sweaty, stinky, grown-ass men. I don't enjoy it. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I hate it, to be honest. Uh -huh. But I do it because I have to. It's my job. Mm -hmm. But I don't enjoy it for fun. And the ones that go out and do it all the time, they love it. That's their thing. And like I said, everybody needs an outlet, and that's theirs. But I don't think that, like I said, you know, it's great in theory, but it's not realistic. So is it, if so, if they were to take the um, take this idea and say, okay, twenty percent of your time has to be some sort of of uh, physical training in this matter. So so you're not how gonna... often? Then need, okay, twenty percent of your time. So forty hours a week. Let's just say a forty hour work week. Yeah. Twenty percent of forty hours. I'm I'm terrible at math. Me too. That's why I didn't try to help you. <laughs> okay. That means they need to spend eight hours do, out, out of eight, basically what's equivalent to one full work day. Um, That's a lot, but what if in, instead of, so no extra hours whatsoever, what if they just said, this is what you're going to do. And then obviously what you alluded to before, if you're going to do something like that, for all this downtime, you're going to have to hire more people, right? Because you can't just suddenly say, well, eight hours of every police officer 
uh, is gone now because they're. Well, first of all, legally, you can't force them to do something without paying for it. Right. They can't force us to do something on our off time. Yeah. I mean, like say, so during that 40 hour, let's say you're required to work 40 hours a week, then eight of those 40 hours has to be doing X, Y, or Z activity. Um, well, that would be roughly, um, would it be an hour and a half a day? Close enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so that means an hour and a half of that, of that um, eight hour shift needs to be spent working out. Yeah. Another so half an hour for getting ready. So the figure two hours out of every day is going to be spent working out. Is I, it possible? Sure. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Would, um, you, would you be more inclined to accept some sort of relate regulation like that? If they're saying, Hey, these are within your paid hours. So instead of out on the street, you know, doing stuff and dealing with these people. Oh, would I? Yeah, hell yeah, I would. I would love it. All of us would. Oh, okay. I, I, cause I was, I was, yeah, oh, no. I was trying to find out. Oh, no, no, no. No, here's, here's where you... Yeah, uh, and it depends on where you work. I know every agency is different, you know, so I can't speak on behalf of all agencies all over the country. Yeah. Um, we have divisions within my agency that they are allowed to work out on duty. SWAT guys work out all the time. They're full-time SWAT. That's what they get paid for. These guys are as, well, as close to special ops as you're going to get in the civilian world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But these guys, you know, and then they get that that machismo, you know, competitive against each other, who can outrace who, and and that's all good and done, you know, that's fine. Yeah. But they, they literally get paid for it. Then you've got detectives who work in the, in the um, offices and a lot of, you know, a lot of them will work out on their lunch hours. Well, they got a nice, beautiful state of the art gym right there in their building, mm-hmm. you know, um, and in a nice locker room. But then you got your patrol officer who's in a uniform. We can't work out in our uniform. Now we got to, you know, we got to change out. We got to, you know, take all the gear off. Um, but I used to do it. I used to do it all the time when I was younger. When I first started for like the first five years, when it slowed me down was becoming a mom because I'm a single mom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I became a mom, I'll be the first one to tell you my career then became my job. It was no longer my identity. Mm -hmm. It was no longer who I was. It was my job. It paid the bills. I did the best job I could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, but my number one priority was and always will be m- my daughter, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and if I had uh, another parent in the home to carry some of the weight, I'm sure it would be a whole lot easier, mm-hmm. um, but I don't have that, and so, you know, I come home, I work out on my own time the way I want to do it, Honestly, I don't do it to be in better shape. I don't do it for vanity reasons. Mm-hmm. I have found it's a great way to relieve stress. I do it to relieve stress. Yeah. Um, but I'm 50 years old. And that's the other thing. You know, people go in the military when they're 18, 19 years old, and they're retiring at the age of 38, mm-hmm. 40 tops. Yeah. And, they got and time to start a whole nother career. In most cases, a lot younger than that as well. So. Yeah. I mean, as far as out of the military, when I mean, the general average is not making it from 
from 20 all the way to 40. That's that'd be very unusual statistically. It, yeah, it, it's they, most of I mean, many get out, you know, eight to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Then there's this, you know, then there's the ones that make that are what we call lifers. Mm-hmm. The lifers are starting a new life at the age of 38 to 40. They've done their 20 years of retiring and they're starting. They've got time to start a whole new career and get a whole new retirement. I didn't become a cop until I was 31. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be 51 in May, which is when I hit my 20th anniversary. And, you know, because I got a late start in this job, I can't do the things I did when I was 30. I'd love to, but I can't. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. You know, so it, it's just, it's one of those things where we do the best we can with what we can, but, and I'm not trying to make excuses. And I know, there's going to be people out there to be like, Oh no, that's not true. You know, you can do anything you want. Well, that's great. But in a lot of these people I know that say those things are divorced. Mm-hmm. They're, they're divorced for a reason. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It Cause they weren't like, carrying their weight at home. Yeah. Maybe that's why I'm not married. My, my, yeah. But you said you got a girlfriend. Just, so. Yeah. My mouth just never stops. That's why I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Donna, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, for me, it's been amazing. I really hope a lot of people listen to it. I hope a lot of people buy your book. Um, is there you. any is there any final message you want to put out, and as well as your social media, how people can find you, contact you, get your book? Absolutely. Um, again, here I'll show fold it. It's courageously broken. It can be. Uh, you can just Google it, look it up on the internet. It'll pop right up. It's available in pretty much everywhere online. Um, they can go to their local bookstores. They'd be doing, being, doing me a huge favor if they went into their local, you know, Barnes and Noble books, a million or whatever their large bookstore is and ask them to order it. Cause I would love to see it actually carried on shelves eventually. Mm-hmm. It's got to have enough momentum to get to that point. We're not quite there yet. Yeah. Um, they can, uh, they can look me up on pretty much every social media platform. Some of mine are, my Instagram is up and running. My Twitter's up and running. My Facebook's up and running. My website's being revamped right now by an expert who actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. mine, mine look when I did it, it looked like a kindergartner did it. It wasn't pretty. Yeah. Um, That's my look a, all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it wasn't pretty. Um, but it's being revamped and it shouldn't, it, it should be up by the end of the week. And uh, it's courageously hyphenbroken.com. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, please buy my book. Um, if not for yourself, then maybe as a gift, it's maybe I've had a lot of people buy it as gifts for someone who served or someone who's gone through stuff, which has been, um, you know, a, a very humbling as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm available by email at Donna Michaels 70 at gmail.com. So I'm always open to getting emails and answering any questions. If anybody wants to reach out to me privately. Awesome. Well, Donna, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And my book is in the mail. Hopefully it will be here by Wednesday and I'll be able to, uh, I only got to read the introduction a little bit because uh, it wasn't uh, available, but my copy should be here soon. So I'm looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll attach all your social media stuff uh, to the to the link. I did want to add, I, I apologize that uh, I am donating 10% of my proceeds to a nonprofit organization in Texas that is um, t- customized training uh, PTSD service dogs for first responders and veterans. And um, I'm wholeheartedly believe that these dogs do save lives. So we've created some merchandise as well. So we now have t-shirts and hoodies. 
Awesome. And uh, those will be going up on the website as well, available for purchase. Uh, what's your website? Can you say it again? Courageously-broken.com. All right. Excellent. But it's All like right. I said, it's being revamped. So it's give, give that one a few days. Okay. No problem. All right. Well, this has been Systemically Distorted Communication with uh, Donna Michaels. I really appreciate it. And if you have any disputes or problems with anything you heard, I hope you'll send me an email at systemically systemicdcommunication at gmail.com. Thank you, Donna. I appreciate it. Thank you.